there, you're listening to Context, giving you a biblical perspective on issues of race, inequality, gender, abortion, culture, and so much more with Timba Lamini. Hello and welcome to Context. Today's discussion is a very interesting and topical discussion. We are discussing to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. And we are trying to help us as believers, how do we navigate this issue of vaccinations and those who think that vaccinations shouldn't be done or we shouldn't we shouldn't vaccinate? Um, how do we cut through the clutter of misinformation, fake news, and what really is something that we ought to be really considering. So on the, on, on the set with me, I've got Dr. Spencer, who uh, Greg is going to introduce right now, and Greg, a friend, pastor, mentor. He's the lead elder at uh, God First Parks. And I'm going to hand over to you, Greg, and you can just uh, greet the listeners and uh, tell us more about yourself. And yeah, let's go ahead. Cool. Yeah, thanks, Timber. It's good to be on this podcast. We've spoken about... Uh, starting this podcast some months ago, and I'm thrilled to see what you've done. Um, and it's great. Thanks for having me. Um, I think this is a really important topic. Um, if you look at social media, if you look at the stats on vaccination in our country, it is obviously um, something that is bringing some division and some controversy and what I've noticed on social media is that the battle lines are quickly drawn. And as a pastor, my concern is to love everyone well, um, both those who are pro-vaccine and those who, for the myriad of reasons, may not be pro-vaccine. Um, but I do think it's important that we know the facts so that when we make the decision, we're making that on, on decent facts. Um, and that's not just purely an emotional response or an emotional decision. So when we discussed this, um, I immediately thought of Dr. David Spencer, who was part of our church probably a decade ago. Um, and I know that he is an infectious diseases expert, having uh, practiced and, and uh, taught at WITS Med School as well for many years specializing in internal medicine and in infectious diseases. And having been at the forefront of uh, working with the AIDS epidemic, I thought he was the ideal person to introduce you to, Timber, because I thought he would be someone that would be able to assist in this, in this podcast. So, David, lovely to reconnect Good. again and see you. Welcome to the show. Why don't Thank you just you. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your medical background and, and then maybe you can just kick us off on what actually a vaccine is and how it works. Great. So I'm Dave Spencer, and uh, really good to be here, guys, and, uh, and kind of uh, thank you so much for the invite. Um, so I'm a physician. I'm, uh, my background is uh, in infectious diseases. I've obviously been around a long time. I qualified down at UCT Cape Town in 1969, uh, 1974. I went down in 69 uh, from my home in Durban and, um, and then spent some time in mission medical work after I qualified and did some time in uh, theological training, and then came back to South Africa in 1980, uh, and back into medicine at Wits at, uh, in Joburg. And it became quite clear to me that um, my future would be in internal medicine, specialised in first 
firstly in oncology, cancer work, and then moved into infectious diseases. And it was a time of the AIDS epidemic. Um, in the 80s, very little of AIDS and HIV, apart from in the gay community in Johannesburg and so on. But by the 90s, um, as our borders opened, so the heterosexual uh, HIV and AIDS epidemic began, and I was involved in that. So, so the issues for me in terms of COVID-19, and here I am now in my retirement, but as a, a editor of a Southern African HIV a journal of medicine, um, looking at science and a new pandemic. So what about vaccines and what about the vaccine for COVID? So we have several. We have a multitude, in fact, of uh, vaccines that all appear to be fairly effective. Well, what is a vaccine? So what we found, and let me quickly go back into history. So if I go back a couple of centuries to a man called Edward Jenner in England, who found that, that, and he was a GP working uh, um, in a rural pastoral area, and he found that the ladies who milked the cows never got smallpox, and there were epidemics of smallpox in the area. And he puzzled what protected these ladies who were our... Um, who were the ones who milked the cows from smallpox. What he noticed was that the, the skin pustule, that, that nasty-looking thing that you get with smallpox, kind of like a huge blister, was very similar to the blisters that would occur on the hands of the ladies who milked the cow. That was called cowpox. And he thought, well, are, are these similar? The, the smallpox that we're seeing in the people in Britain and in Europe, are they similar to the pox germ or whatever it was? They remember, didn't have a, a germ concept in those days. This was back in 1797. And, uh, and so he experimented on his own children and then later on the children in the community by taking a little bit of a scraping from the cowpox in the ladies who had these kind of little kind of wart-like things on their hands and scraping it onto the children in the area that he served as a GP. And what he found was that as the epidemics of smallpox came into the area, his children, his own and his own family, and the children of the community who were prepared to go with their GP and have these scrapings did not get smallpox. So that began what we call the modern era of vaccinology, of giving people vaccines. And all of us now as adults have, when we were born, we had a whole series of measles vaccine, rubella vaccine, etc. We have them as children. And we've grown up to understand in our world that they are essential. 
so that we don't complain when our babies are born and they have to go back to the uh, clinic to have their vaccination. We understand that this is one way of protecting our own children from the future. So, yeah, th thanks, Doctor. And I think, I think most of the listeners listening to you now are quite okay with vaccines. They've, they've grown up, I think, I mean, you, I don't think there's anyone within a South African context who can say they have grown up and they've never taken a vaccine. Yeah. You know, uh, that person would be an exception. But I think the majority has, has no real problem with the vaccine. You might have developed a problem post the issues. And I think then the real question is then, I am a person who is okay with taking a flu vaccine. But this particular vaccine that we are talking about of COVID, I'm not that okay. And I think maybe if you can help us navigate that area, is, is the COVID vaccine safe to take or not? So let's get back to COVID-19. So this is a new viral infection. Viruses are microbes, they're bugs. And I, in the AIDS day, when I would speak to my patients about AIDS and tell them what a virus is, I'd say to them, imagine a very tiny mosquito. And then imagine that if you could, maybe a million times smaller. So you can't see it with the naked eye or even with glasses. That, now we're beginning to get to the size of what a virus is. Is it a real thing? Yes. And can it cause trouble? Yes. So viruses are very tiny, minute microorganisms. Viruses have to live in cells. So they are what we call parasites of the bodies of animals. Plants have viruses, human beings have viruses. So they are universal. And, and so what we knew of HIV and AIDS and what we now know of COVID-19 is that this particular virus, COVID-19, requires cells to live in. Recently, the World Health Organization sponsored a group of um, experts, world experts, about 30 to 40 of them, to go and examine Wuhan, which is the, uh, the, the area in China where this particular epidemic began back, as you know, in around about um, December of 2019. So, so we, what we seem to know now from, from that expert, World Health Organization expert um, task force, going back to Wuhan, was this virus, is the virus a production of a laboratory? A laboratory playing with kind of material that has viruses in it, and for reasons of its own uh, allowed this particular virus to escape the laboratory and cause this pandemic. So what we know is that the virus, coronavirus 2, also called COVID-19, coronavirus number 2 is actually a part of a family of coronaviruses that are in us as humans and in other mammals and other creatures on the planet. And in particular, there is a coronavirus 2 in a species of bat. 
And in that particular or uh, animal, that particular type of bat, we have the closest type of coronavirus two to our own this new COVID nineteen. So they are very similar. If I go back from to the HIV um, analogy, remember that we had to look in the Cameroons amongst the chimpanzees to find, we knew already that our chimpanzees in, in, in various zoos and whatever across the world had a virus like HIV. We call them simian, immunodeficiency viruses. And, but we had none that was identical, virtually identical to our HIV AIDS causing virus until we went to a river, the Shango River, which is a tributary of a Congo up in Central Africa. And we managed to follow the chimpanzees picking up their poop and taking the poop through to the laboratory, finding their simian immunodeficiency virus and seeing, hey, under the microscope in our labs, these two, HIV and this simian virus, were virtually identical. We are doing the same thing now with coronavirus too. We now know that it's in the bat species. And we know that the closest relative to the human is in a fairly rare species of bat. So what, what this particular article that I was looking at early on this week from a WHO, looking at where did this virus come from, what we're now doing is looking in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, China, all of those areas, and, and sampling bats. <clears throat> so we're getting bats and taking the blood out of a bat and looking for coronavirus present and seeing whether we can find the exact virus that gave us coronavirus. Remember that in in a lot of Southeast Asia, we have what we call wet, kind of wet um, uh, animal enclosures where we, we go to the market, they're called wet markets, where we buy and kill animals to eat. Dogs, cats, all sorts of animals, wild animals and bats. You'll remember that in Sierra Leone, where we have... Um, where we have other viruses that cause hemorrhagic fever, people eat bats and get viral hemorrhagic fever from them, Ebola. So, so it's not unusual for this thing to happen. So, so we now know that this isn't a virus that was manufactured in a lab because we, we kind of know what the viruses are in our different virology labs all across the world. And we can then look at that and we can compare it with coronavirus 1 and coronavirus 2, rather, and we can see that they're very different. So this must have come from an animal as the, as the uh, origin, the origin of this particular infection. In terms of vaccinating, so there are different ways of vaccinating. So in the old days, we would, uh, we would take 
people's blood. Someone who's had measles or whatever, and we would look for antibodies. So when I get an infection, my body produces two things, cells to fight the germ, and it produces what we call proteins. Proteins that are, uh, are attack proteins that attack the germ and help us. So with coronavirus 2, with this particular pandemic, we've looked at our patients and we have, just, we have found those particular proteins that we call antibodies, and we found what we call T-cells, special lymphocytes, special types of cells that we also know about in HIV and AIDS that are important to protect the body. So what, what people do, what my colleagues will do, will be to look at antibodies and see whether if we give those antibodies from someone who's recovered to someone who has the infection, will that help? So that's kind of a, a simple way of early vaccination. We used to do that. We tend not to do it now because, because of bloody blood types and other aspects that make the blood of you or me kind of unacceptable or, or may cause some form of um, allergy or whatever. So we look at different ways. So over the past, we've taken when we found viruses and we put them into animal models. And in particular, into the embryo of chicks, so eggs. So a, a major way of producing vaccines uh, historically has been to impregnate a, a, an egg, a chick egg, and to allow the virus to grow in there and then to use that as a means, we will alter that particular virus slightly in the laboratory and give what we call an attenuated, a changed, slightly modified virus to people as the vaccine. Hepatitis B, all of those, and they're very successful. But some people have egg allergies. Some people have allergies to, if we were to use mice, or whatever, allergies to the animal model that we use in the lab. So in recent years, we've, and as our technology has improved, and again, the HIV virus gave us this kind of lead into it, to be able to measure the virus itself. I do viral loads on my patients with, with HIV. And in our labs, we can collect the virus and we can do what we call a gene typing. I get the actual DNA, or in this case, of a, the virus, both HIV and also coronavirus, one and two, are RNA viruses, ribonucleic acid viruses. And we can actually identify those in our labs. So, so what we do is we take a portion of what we call the messenger RNA. That is part of the virus. We don't take the entire length of a virus, the whole live virus. We take a little bit of the virus which we know, hey, that determines the way in which the virus enters my cells. So if we look at the, at the virus in, under the electron microscope, we'll see it has little 
spikes on it. Little kind of out, outer spikes that allow it to, when it gets into my body, to latch onto the cells in my throat because it's a respiratory virus particularly and go down into my lungs and cause trouble. So we, when we look at the messenger RNA or the reactal ribonucleic acid genome of a virus, the genetic material, from number one nucleic acid to number 5,000 and whatever, and we can do that in our labs. We identify what are the crucial pieces of this messenger RNA that determine pathology, that determine disease. We identify them and we now are able to cut those little pieces of messenger RNA and we then separate that from the live virus. This is now a little piece of messenger RNA. And we use that. So these are what we call messenger RNA vaccines. So can I interrupt you there, Dave? So so are you saying that we take that little piece of the whole virus chain and that is what gets put into the vaccine which comes into our body? Yeah. Um, And is it correct to say that a virus needs our cells to reproduce or to exist, really. So if it cannot attach, it would just go through our system. Yes. And so the bit that we put in is, is, is the point of it to create antibodies in us or is it to, to... So it goes through our system without attaching, but it creates the antibodies. So when we inject it into the muscle, so that little piece of what we call messenger RNA, which is part, a part of the virus, will then be broken up. And in my body, cells will pick it up. So we have scavenging immune cells whose job is to go through my system, your system, your body, my body, all the time, looking for nasty So they soldiers, they guys who defend, they soldiers Absolutely. looking out yeah. for any but, enemy invading. So the immune system is a protective mm. system. It, it's there to make me well and keep me well. So they go around here, and you'll, you'll know that after you've had the vaccine, this area feels a little bit sore for a day or two. Um, because there's already an inflammatory process. Mm. A little, the, bug, the, the cells that are living in my tissues there kind of notice, hey, there's something, there's something we've never seen before here. And uh, they will then send signals to under my glands, their lymph nodes, under my armpits, groin, their armpits, there are um, lymph nodes. They'll send the message to where my glands are and there will be rapid production of anti-molecules. We call them antibodies. To, so, the bug, so the bug that gets in there, the part, part of a bug is then identified and a response is made by my body that we call antibodies, proteins. These are proteins. And those proteins then uh, go through not just that area and cause that inflammation and that kind of... And sometimes when you've had a vaccine, you have a bit of a headache for a day or two or achiness over your joints and muscles. That's part of that inflammatory 
process and it's kind of normal. And uh, so that when we vaccinate people, we say, hey, uh, take an aspirin, take a panadot, whatever, uh, for a day or two if you need. And it normally settles down. So what we do is we produce a kind of infection in the human host. And, and that is in order for that man or woman or child to produce antibodies. So that when they actually are exposed to the real thing, there is already a protective, what we call a protective antigens or proteins in him or her. So can I ask you, um, I've heard some people um, saying, I got the vaccine, and I know so-and-so, auntie, whatever, had the vaccine and then she got COVID. Is that possible from this DNA, putting this piece of uh, the the, the virus in you? So the one thing about viruses, they're living, they're parasites, as I said to you, so they have to live in our cells. And they are able to change. So when we talk about RNA and DNA, the genome, those are actually nucleic acids. And three nucleic acids gives rise to what we call an amino acids. And proteins are built off what we call amino acids. So if I play with changing these nucleic acids, you know, nucleic acids are things like thymidine, cytosine, guanine, and so on, which you don't need to know about. But as viruses play with those, they mutate. And so those three little nucleic acids, if I change one or two of those nucleic acids, the amino acid changes. And, and as those amino acids change in the virus the virus mutates. And, and it, remember that when we get an infection, we don't get one little virus. We get millions. Yeah. We get millions. So that in a tiny drop of blood, your viral load will be many thousands. Many thousands. So you have a little virus that has been exposed to uh, an environment that it doesn't like. It is having babies all the time. So those, those become millions more viruses. And every actual replication cycle of the virus throws out new mutated virus. And we see this in HIV. So ultimately, <coughs> if patients don't take their drugs carefully and suppress their virus, they end up having resistance to the drugs we give them. The same process is going on with coronavirus too. We don't have drugs, but we have the antibodies. And if people are not being... If, they are, if we don't suppress the virus... And, and many people that don't take the vaccine, for instance, have no protection. So they allow the virus to grow in them and multiple strains of a virus develop in that person. So that's the, that, <clears throat> that's the kind of idea of a concept that we have of we have different strains. So we have a beta strain, now a delta strain, causing these waves of infection. And, and if there's no immunity 
or if the immunity is not kind of total, then we allow these new strains to so develop. Maybe just to yeah to 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 double click on on that question now. So, are you then saying, um, based on whether you've got these multiple strands in you, when you get now the vaccine, can the vaccine trigger that like for somebody to get incredibly ill to the point of death, you know? Um, because of the, of, of the complications of these multiple strains, is that I'm no, just trying to simplify it. Yeah, let's you simplify that. So, so in terms of a natural infection, so let, with alpha vaccines, natural infection, the virus produces mutate, mutants. Right. And ultimately, uh, those mutants, as we've seen, become more aggressive. Mm. So the beta strain, so the alpha strain, kind of fairly simple to handle, although they did cause death in the beginning, but Delta, you've seen in India, you've seen in South Africa, in Brazil, the results of, say, the Delta, even in America, how it kills thousands of people. Mm. So, so that's a natural history. So <clears throat> what the body does when you get an infection, it produces these antibodies, these proteins. When we give a vaccine, we give a, we give a little parcel portion of a virus, the messenger RNA, and the body produces antibodies to it. But it is possible that one may get another infection, as we've seen already, that people are vaccinated and some of them do get a second infection. But that won't come from the vaccine dose. It will come Doesn't from come. being caught elsewhere. That's yeah. why I think we're just wanting to, to check with you. So You're the vaccine right. itself cannot make you ill no. to the point so, of death. <clears throat> so the vaccine itself, remember you're giving a patient, a person, you're giving them a protein. Yeah. In the old days when we used to manufacture um, vaccines in egg yolk, if the patient had an allergy to eggs, then they might react. So in terms of the manufacture of these viruses, mRNA viruses, they're proteins, they're, they're kind of, they, pro they produce an antigenic process. So people sometimes do react to that. But it's or, not with COVID. It might be another reaction. So, so, <clears throat> so it's not with COVID, but it's a reaction to the virus. So there are stories. If you look at the deaths, yeah. So you will know when you look at YouTube, people saying, hey, there are 28 people who died, or I think it's now something like 328 people in America who've died after they've had the vaccine. From blood clot issues or something and like blood that. Blood right. clot, yeah. So, so those kind of issues are related to the vaccine. They're rare when you look at the numbers. And in America, I think it's in the region of uh, uh, around about... Um, 250 million people who have been vaccinated. So when we talk about 325, the actual percentage is 0 0.0002. So it's a very, very small number. So when, I, when we give a vaccine to people, our different immune systems will behave differently. We will produce antibodies against a virus but we also might produce antibodies against ourselves and our own tissues. 
And as you've just said a moment ago, Greg, uh, particularly we know with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and there have been some cases with the Pfizer, BioNTech uh, vaccine, that there have been these uh, clottings, mainly in women, uh, younger women particularly, uh, in the brain with strokes, clotting, but sometimes in the organs as well, within the lung and so on. So, so fairly early on, um, we understood even before we had the vaccines that when we did autopsies on people who died, we saw clotting in their pulmonary arteries and so on. So we already know that, that part of the response to the virus, the human response, is to produce proteins that cause the Cutting. coagulation, mm. cause the circulation through the body in some people to be compromised, i.e. you produce clot in some of the major vessels. And, and as I say, even with our vaccines, but very, very rare, zero, 0.002, I think is a number, is a percentage that we look at in terms of the Johnson & Johnson and the Pfizer. Tiny numbers. So can you, can you just also help contextualise that, that, that sort of that minuscule number that you're mentioning? And I think if you can help us contextualise it also in relation to the speed with which this vaccine has been, has been churned out, you know, in your opinion, had they had more time I think one had they had more time to interrogate and and because some someone would would say you know what I mean one or two or whatever you know I, I'm, I'm being idealistic here would say it's one too many or three hundred too many or whatever the figure is currently I think you said three twenty or, or well three twenty eight I think it is in, in right. terms of America in terms of a J and J absolutely so in in terms of that context I mean. If they had more time, in your opinion, would they have been able to 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 prevent it? And then, uh, I mean, secondly, we have a situation where the Pfizer vaccine has just recently been approved by the FDA. You know, now how come? How how was it even approved before the FDA? You know, comes and and approved it. What would have happened had the FDA said, "Hey, by the way, you guys have gone ahead. This thing, you know, it's just." a massive disaster, there will be um, side effects further down the line, you know. And, yeah, I don't want to ask too many questions, but if you can just clarify those and then... So, the, so let's just think for a moment of a world without a vaccine and COVID-19, right. i.e. Wuhan. <coughs> Wuhan and China and and then the virus spreading via the um, via aeroplane travel and so on in the rest of the world. If there were no, if there were no vaccine, the death rate from this virus, and it is already horrendous. Uh, you just need to look at the United States. Um, I think it was about two, um, is it uh, around about 750,000 deaths in America already. So, and we've got, in terms of South Africa, we know that we have in the region of about 88 thousand deaths, but when we look at the excess deaths, uh, the numbers of deaths that we don't know what caused them, but we look in terms of South Africa and in Africa, that at the peak of a third wave, peak of a second wave, the excess goes up. So the excess follows the curve of the coronavirus. 
Right. So when we're saying, hey, we've got 88,000 deaths in South Africa, it's been many more. In fact, that excess over the last year is around about 150,000. So ready. So when you've got such a lethal virus in your society, you kind of have to do things quickly. So the quickest things was the epidemiological role. Hey, wash your hands, everyone. Distance, social distance. Wear a mask because it's mainly spread through. And don't go into classes. So, and, and stop restaurants and bars and, and, and kind of sporting events and so on. So that was our first way, our first approach to controlling this virus. Mm. It did work, right. in part, in part, it did. But you would have to stay at home and, uh, and you'd have to be able to work from home which is not feasible, and you've seen what the economy of many countries uh, has suffered because of that. So the question was, this is a virus. We need a vaccine against it. We need something against it. What I think is remarkable is that within six months, so we have December 2019, come June, July of 2020, six months, already there are vaccines on the market or being looked at. And <clears throat> clearly, in, for instance, we were part of that in South Africa. We did part of a J&J um, vaccine clinical trials. Okay. And remember that when you go into a clinical trial, we will tell you what we're doing. So we, so we give what is known as informed consent. Mm. And those early clinical trials were amongst medical practitioners in our hospitals and so on. We used the, that group because we could be able to study them. They were, in a sense, a captive audience and, and they understood the meaning, hey, we've got a lethal virus in our community, we have to do something quickly. And we then found that very few people had any significant reactions to those particular vaccines that we gave here in Joburg, down in Cape Town, all over this country, down in Durban as well. And, uh, uh, and those trials were run by my colleagues who, like myself, in the HIV and AIDS era, had done clinical trials. So we're, we're very kind of closely monitoring people. So by that six-month period, we already knew. Yeah, we knew that there were some kind of problems with the, with the occasional patient, but people were not dying when they got the vaccine. It was rare. In fact, I don't think we, uh, in those early days, had any vaccine deaths at all. When we spread it out to the wider community, we've heard of some. In South Africa, small number, all over the world, these occasional events. So, so in terms of the, the vaccines, so you have FDA, the Federal Drug Administration in America, giving the okay for American vaccines. Right. Okay, for, for use in America. Mm. In terms of the rest of the world, different countries will have their own kind of, as we have SAPRA right, in right. this country, South African mm. Products uh, Regulatory Authority. So we have our own. And we have for... for much of the world, the WHO, World Health Organization, and they have a, an expert grouping 
So we call that the sage group of around about 40 or so experts in the field of vaccinology, viruses, and so on. So, so when you say, well, you know, why, why was this done? And so sort of early on and, and before, well, it, it, there were people looking at these, WHO, World Health Organization. You remember how you would see them every night on your uh, movie, you know, on your uh, TV. Um, the guys would be telling you what they were doing. So we had this large group, we had the FDA, and we have our own group, say, in South Africa. Right. So it isn't as though we have an unmonitored, unregistered, right, right. unlooked at product. Mm. And, and we knew at the same time we have to get moving quickly because people were dying all over the world. So that was why some of that was why these particular um, vaccines, Moderna, uh, Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson, etc., a large number of them now were released into the community. Right in the beginning. Again, it was those clinical trials all over the world, America, uh, England, Britain. When we first used them, they were under a trial conditions where every, everything that happened to the individual who got the vaccine was dotted down, blood tests were done, and they were monitored and followed. We didn't see deaths at that particular time. We did have people having reactions, sometimes kind of fairly severe, but it was minimal. And as I say, we're looking right now at uh, 0.0002. So you'd have to have very, very large clinical trials to be able to find these deaths, mm. which we then have found mm. and we've gone back to. So, so I think... I think it's all been done in a very controlled, regulated way, Timber. Mm. Um, so I'm not frightened of a virus or of a vaccines. Um, I think they have, we've done what we should have done uh, in order to stave this pandemic mm. from killing more people. No, I think, I think I'm definitely sold, you know, from, from, the, from the side of, of, mm. of just the the, the 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 urgency, the effectiveness, even you know, with the, with the, with the, uh, the the occasional um, mishap, you know, yeah. uh, you know, depending on you know um, yeah. just people's misfortunes, I would I guess in that situation. But then that happens. The six months happens, and then these vaccines are, are I mean are being are being are being produced. Then we have Dr. Eden, you know, who kinds of like sort of. Um, really upsets the whole thing by saying, I'm resigning. He's a scientist, former vice president of, of, of Pfizer. And he says, no, guys, I'm now an anti-vaxxer. Now, how do we explain, not explain him away, but you know, surely he has, there's merit in, um, in, in, in his reservations. And how much should we pay attention to those? Okay. So you remember, can I go back to AIDS, HIV and AIDS? Because that's kind of in my career that was kind of where I was focused on for many, many years. But remember the Mbeki era. And right. if, remember the um, ANC government of a day. And I sat on the panel, for instance, with Viradine. So way back in the, the early 1990s, uh, a technician at Pretoria University 
in the chemical path department, came up with the, the idea that, hey, I've got this particular solvent that kills viruses. Can't we give that to people? Remember Donald Trump saying, oh, yeah, let's give him all his, you know, dick or whatever. We'll inject it in the world, get you to swallow your dick. Right, right. So, so viridine mm. became the, the name of a moment back in the 1990s. We told the government, hey, guys, backstep back immediately. This is a toxic compound. Yes, it kills viruses, but it will kill people. other things too. Yeah. And, right. and, and there were people who died of liver failure uh, because viridine then got onto the black market and people got to selling it and whatever. So, and that was then followed, as you know, by the story from Mbeki. We don't, we don't believe in HIV, in a virus. Right. And he listened to Duisburg in California, a Nobel Prize winner a Nobel Prize winner, but in the field, not in the field of virology, in a totally different field, okay? And, and Duisburg was an anti... Um, an AIDS denialist. AIDS denialist, one, one of the big ones, and as I say, a Nobel Prize winner. So, so Mbeki heard him and then said to everyone, hey, this isn't real, we're not dying of AIDS. Uh, we're dying of malnutrition, diet. Uh, we must attend to the diet. So you understand that story. Yes. So yeah. now I'm. Now we have another pandemic that, that the whole world is fixated on, terrified by, and we have to come up with ideas. And unfortunately. This gentleman from Pfizer, I don't know what the entire background to that story was, but you may well find that there are other uh, ex extraneous reasons why he had to say what he had to say. All I know is that the data convinces me that Pfizer is a vaccine that I've had, uh, the Pfizer vaccine that I've had for two doses, um, and I have antibodies against this virus. Do I have the antibodies that will control it totally if there's a new mut mutation? I'm not sure. So even though I've been vaccinated, if in my community here in South Africa, I then, then am exposed no longer to the alpha, beta, delta, but maybe a totally new strain that has been allowed to develop within the community because people haven't taken the vaccine and, and because there will already be a bit of herd immunity because many of us would have had, particularly your age, young people, your age group, will not have a nasty effect from a virus. You, you can laugh it off. It's a, a nasty flu. It kind of, that's all. And so many people in our community already have some level of antibodies to coronavirus too. So, so in, in, in many ways, if we don't vaccinate everyone, then we leave the virus in the community, mutating, passing on, from one to another, so that still are elderly, my age, 
these kind of, you know, Madonna kind of people who are over the hill, we will die from it. Sure. Um, and, And so I think one has a responsibility, particularly in view of the fact that our vaccines have been shown to be so effective and so safe. What we do need to understand is those ones who have these horrible kind of uh, horrible um, consequences of vaccine, of taking the vaccine, what is happening there? If we were to do various things, would that help? And and that's where people are obviously looking at. When... um, before we had vaccines, I got COVID-19 myself um, in January of this year, before the vaccines became available. The first thing they gave me when I went into hospital and I was out of breath and whatever, was they gave me steroid, cortisone. And that is one of the ways in which we control the reaction of the immune system. We dampen it down so it doesn't kill people. Mm. And it allows you then... So at the moment, we're looking at anti-inflammatories and and things. Should we be getting other things with the vaccine? And that's um, really to treat the symptoms. Yeah. yeah. So so clearly, and we do that. So we, get, we say, hey, take some panada or anti-inflammatories and, and so on. So, so I think we're learning lessons as we go along. Uh, largely because this is a new virus. Will this be a virus that will be in the human community forever? Probably. Probably. Sure. So I guess, um, sitting from my point of view as, as a leader in a faith community, I, I guess it does lead me to want to encourage people to get the vaccine as a, a, a means of... Um, being caring and showing love toward the greater community. And I, and I, think, I think what I'm hearing over and over again is that there's, there might be a very, very small risk of the vaccine, but it's a far smaller risk than actually having this COVID thing mutate in the, in the community and be passed on to people with no defense who could possibly pass away as a result. So... Yep. so Greg, we're looking at the church in, in its kind of eclipse, many people would say. Please God, not your church, not God first. But when I look at the universal church, kind of, but, but if I look back into what made the difference when Christianity first kind of blew into the Roman world, and the ancient world was exactly that. I care for my brother. I care for others. And, and it's that love of one another that I think is, is part of a message for me of the virus and of the vaccination. That, that Christianity kind of, kind of impacted societies in the last two millennia because of the good it did. Initially, it was by saying that people are important, God loves us. Later, that kind of transmuted into hospitals and medicine and uh, teaching. And, and you've seen in all over the world, schools, uh, medical things that have emerged through that kind of ethos of care and compassion. My worry is that with folk who, who say... 
that vaccines are are bad for us and and I'm independent, I can do my own thing. Yes, I, I do understand that. We live in an era where we need to make a judgment call. But all I would say is that in terms of viruses, you, you're dealing with a specialised kind of bug that not all of us understand well. So maybe we should give the experts in the environment, in uh, whether it's FDA, SAGE, SAPRA, whatever, the benefit of a doubt that, that yes, we trust you to actually uh, be looking after us well. And, and that again is, I think, a healing thing for our society, that we should all be in this together and rather than pulling apart and tearing society apart, we should try and find a common road forward. Yeah, and, and, and I think that is, that is the key, and I think that is the consensus, and I believe even amongst the faith community, I think deep down, everybody wants to care, you know, and obviously I guess there is the tension between my personal convictions versus the, the communal impact that they have mm. On, mm. on others, and I think that's another thing, that you're loving somebody else as you're loving yourself, but I think where I think other people are finding it hard to pass the hurdle. And I think the hurdle that a lot of people are struggling with, it's, it's the hurdle of, um, of, of, of trust. That they are struggling with the issue of trust. Obviously, there's been so much that's been said. And I think one of the things that it, you just mentioned now that we must sort of defer to the experts. You know, there's obviously that aspect deferring but at the same time, taking some level of personal responsibility, given the data that has been that you that you have received, and one of the things that 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 I think has put did put a span in the works as far as the trust element is yeah. concerned, it's the ivermectin issue, where you had the experts, you know, writing petitions to government and saying. I mean, government, this is helpful. It's, it's, I mean, I've treated people with this. Yes, it's for animals and so on, but there are, there are co compounds in there that are effective against treating the virus. And so we want you to legislate it in such a way that we can use it legally, you know, in cases where we deem it appropriate. And then you found that the government dragged its feet and you found that the big pharmaceuticals did not... Um, advocate for that to what extent you know is there likelihood that ivermectin can potentially be effective you know because i guess when a trust issue comes in is that when there's money money there's always a sort of a suspicion of corrupt motives you know which are counter the gospel by the way where where profit becomes your ultimate yeah. reason and you realize we spend billions investigating this this virus and we can't chuck this vaccine out the window on some less less well, costly or less profitable. Almost free drug. Um, almost free, absolutely almost free drug. So that, you can't sort of ignore that, should that be the case, that would be a real consideration in the boardroom of these particular organizations and so forth. Now, how do we explain the ivermectin stuff, having the experts do that? And I think you'd help us with your, with your uh, uh, expert knowledge in, the, in this thing yeah. and help us deal with the trust deficit in that, in that situation. So I think my, uh, my, my approach would be that <clears throat> the era we're in 
is an era of um, availability of uh, instant knowledge. It right. comes out of my cell phone. It comes out of my WhatsApp. It comes out of the media, uh, you know, YouTube, whatever. So we're exposed constantly to a variety of viewpoints. And I'm sure when you would have watched the Trump era, uh, where on Twitter every few minutes, you know, uh, a new idea was, was being thrown out. So, so we live in an era right now that is entirely different to any era we've known before, where instantly I know what's happening in Las Palmas, on, in that volcano in the Canary Islands. Today, here I am thousands of kilometers away. I know what's going on. I'm seeing the terror, etc. So what I'm saying to you is that we have this, we have many multiple experts telling us what to believe. Right. And once upon a time, we had some kind of idea of how to kind of get rid of the, the, the noise and be able to hear the truth. And that's what we expect from FDA, SAGE, SAPRA, whatever. And, and I'd say to you guys that by and large, um, that is what we need to hear. The problem being that in an early stage of a pandemic that we've had, even the experts get confused. They're scrambling. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we're all scrambling for an understanding. And I remember that from the HIV era, where, where we had, you know, some people saying, hey, use this. Remember Ubajani? Yes, yep. It was a kind of a cocktail in, in KZN. That we, was, we, we had the Minister of Beetroot. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Shabalana. So yeah. you had all of these ideas coming at you, bombarding you. And, um, and, and so we have the same process going on now. Um, a, friend, a friend of mine says that we've got too much information and too little wisdom. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. correct, it's wisdom. It's wisdom. Wisdom comes with time. So we're not kind of, it, it's not there in the beginning. It, it's by the experts kind of sitting in, well, in Geneva, or in the NHI, uh, in the uh, National Health Institute, NHI, in Bethesda, FDA people, those people, uh, all getting together, all having had some experience of COVID, whether it's a vaccine level, whether it's a patient level, whether it's a laboratory level, all of these minds coming together. That is how wisdom is grown. Right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when I think of people who are not taking the vaccine. So I think from what I've heard from you, the, 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 the information I've heard leads me to be convinced that I should take the vaccine. But sure. there's still, I want to acknowledge, there's many people who have many valid reasons for not taking the vaccine. Um, there are some crackpot ideas for not taking the vaccine out there. Wow. Like, you know, like uh, chips being embedded and yep. all this kind of, kind of yeah. ludicrous Wild. stuff. Yeah. I'm hoping that our discussion today would have debunked a bunch of that. Yeah. Uh, if I was giving counsel to people in our church who were saying, okay, I'm not anti-vax, 
But I'm waiting until the wisdom is more fully developed, to yeah. be sure. My first point would be, look, as Christians, we've got nothing to fear because actually death we don't even have to fear. So we, we can be on the front line of, of being guinea pigs, if you want to call it that. So let's do it as a means of love. But I think my next point would be if you are not comfortable because of the, the early stage we're at in the, the genesis of this wisdom, I would want to encourage them. At, you need to be clear at what point you will be convinced because you can't continually be looking for reasons not to be vaccinated because then you have to interrogate what is underlying your decision-making and, and maybe there's an emotional thing going on there that's overriding your brain. And I would be arguing at some point you need to, you need to be clear what are the markers that you're looking for to be convinced because we know vaccines work. We've seen it in history. And if you are unconvinced with the wisdom available, let's call it at this stage, what will convince you? And, and write that down now so that in six months' time, you're not pushing the goalposts out else. again. Because they, I think what I, I hadn't fully considered until today is actually the way the mutation works is by this thing running rampant in the community. And in South Africa, if we less than 20% vaccinated, that means we've got a massive herd of people that could be uh, test tubes for the production of more um, variants of this thing, which could be massively, massively detrimental to our nation. And so I, that would be my charge to my friends who I love, but who have not yet taken the vaccine. So I think what, what medical science has given us already is also who is at risk. So, so the risk of people dying or having severe um, uh, manifestations of COVID-19 is not equal. So elderly people, high risk. 85 years and older, definitely. My age group, 65 years and on, high risk. And so we know age is a factor. We know that comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, etc. These are risk factors. We know that. Um, we know that men are more likely than women. Okay. So we have very clear sense of who is at risk. So, so within that context of saying to people, you make a decision, you find out what, you know, what uh, God is saying to you or what you feel is the right thing to do. But I would be saying to them, in addition, kind of look at the data we know that is incontrovertible that there are risk groups that are much more likely to die or have really nasty um, results from an infection with this virus. So, so it's not as though um, the decision-making would be uninformed. That decision-making must be informed by data, real data. And furthermore, this, this issue of herd immunity. Yes, we, we do want herd immunity, but if we don't ramp up the protection of the herd, we allow the variants, we allow the mutants to actually grow. And as we know that even people who've been vaccinated, even people who've had COVID themselves, like myself, I've had both, even all of us are still susceptible to a further 
infection with this virus. So we have to ramp up the level of immunity within the society. In order for us to survive and in order for us to get back into life. So in the last year, six, 18 months or whatever, people have, certainly my age, I mean for virtually the whole of last year, lived in my flat in Durban um, and, and kind of only went out occasionally to pick up groceries and so on. So we've lived a kind of um, a non-life. And, and I think we, we need to get to the place where we have vaccinated and where we have got back to as close to normal as we can in order to live a life that is productive, loving, kind, compassionate, and is a life that particularly, I think, exemplifies Christian values. That's what I would be saying to you guys and, and whatever. Awesome. No, thank you so much, Doctor. I think my, my, my last question, I know we've, we've, we've covered most of it. I think it's just this question on those who have already got the virus. Do those need to vaccinate or not? Maybe a, a yes or no, maybe with the, the just a, a so, brief explanation. So I, I mean, when I, um, so I had, I had the virus, as I said, at the beginning, before we had vaccines. And I chatted to Shabir Mahdi, to Jeremy Null, youngsters who are trained and taught and, and were my colleagues when I was still at, at uh, WITS. And they said to me uniformly, they said, Dave, we don't want to lose you. Please go and get vaccinated and get the two vaccines. And, and that's the message that, that if I love you, I'm going to do the best for you. If I love you, I'm going to do the best for you. And the best is, yes, to cover the, the delta, cover the beta, all of those strains we've had before. And yes, you may be exposed to another new strain. But one thing about having had the natural infection is that I didn't just have a little por portion of the messenger RNA, but I had the whole thing from number one to 5,000. All of those amino acids that make up this particular living virus. The whole thing in context. So my body has made up, I would expect, antibodies to all the different parts of this particular virus. I'm not recommending that people have natural infection, but I am saying be cautious because you want to build up, particularly our vaccines, target those spike proteins, those particular proteins that get into cells. So you want to make sure kind of I ramp up my level of protection, and that even if I do get this virus, that I have at least a measure that will make sure I go, don't get into hospital, I don't get onto a ventilator, and I don't get in a box at the end of it all. Super. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Spencer. I, I, I want to just hand over to you, Greg, to probably give us the closing remarks, and I think just to help us with, based on the information that we've gleaned from from Dr. Spencer, how then do I, as a believer, take this information and make sense of it through scripture? One, in the area of what do I do? Am I, must, should I 
vaccinate. But having said that, how then do I relate with somebody who is completely an anti-vaxxer, as, 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 the, as, the, as, the, as the phrase says, when it's like these two extreme camps, pro-vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, how do we navigate that space well, so, given, given what we've, we've, we've heard today? Yeah, so I, I think, Timber, in the church, I think my experience is mostly not with anti-vaxxers, it's more with um, people who believe in vaccines but who are more cautious. Mm. Um, I would want to encourage people, based on the information we've heard today, uh, based on the, the, the evidence of how countries that are highly vaccinated are getting back to more normal interaction. I would want to encourage people to be vaccinated, but I also want to plead with those that are of the same persuasion as me that, you know, in the same way that Paul encourages us um, not to harshly judge um, brothers and sisters who have a different persuasion according to their conscience, I, I would want to say we, we to love them. I don't want to call them the weaker brother <laughs> specifically because it does Im- have an implication the, the in there. The that, brother. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, those are the passages that would inform the way I would deal with it. Um, but I would want to treat them with respect and I would want to love them at the same time pointing them toward getting vaccinated and asking questions of them to understand why they are holding the position that they hold um, and potentially challenging them on some of those positions. And and again, like I said earlier, wanting to come back and revisit that in a month, in two months, in three months, because um, to get to the the bottom of what is causing that decision, if if it's a fear-based decision rather than a faith-based decision. Uh, but I think based on the evidence before us, um, I, I, I would strongly want to encourage people as an act of love, as an act of um, concern for the wider community to actually uh, be willing to take the vaccine. Excellent. And maybe just even while, while you are there, would you consider it being extreme if someone says you did not get vaccinated, you are, put, you are actually a murderer? You know, because based on what uh, Dr. Spencer has just said, that if you take this virus and you don't get vaccinated, you are the one that actually increases the risk of a third or fourth strand based on the fact that you don't have a vaccine. And so you're potentially liable for lives actually being lost. Yeah, so that that, that line of um, discourse is getting into the what I, I feel is the, the breaking of relationship and community and I I would want to steer away from that because ultimately we trust God um, and our days are in his hands not in somebody else's hands in terms of you know them infecting us and if 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 we pass uh, we 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 do so in in his hands you know we trust in a sovereign God Um, and I would plead for um, a more loving kinder response um, because the only response that that will get is someone digging in um, from a defensive point of view rather than being soft to have the discussion and be one uh, toward the position of the one saying, listen, we should get vaccinated. Now, I just think that Jesus wouldn't have operated like that, you know. Um, Jesus would have been the friend to the 
the anti the most violent anti-vaxxer. He would be found with that guy. But you know, um, typically when Jesus was found with people, they transformed as well. Mm. Um, I'm not wanting to suggest that if you anti-vaccined, you are some sort of evil person, but all of us are in the process and need of transformation and walking with Jesus results in a transformation. And so we need to be with those people, loving them and, and, uh, and serving them as best we can. Excellent. I don't know if I should say anything, Temba, but, but credibility, giving the church a Christian faith credibility in an in a environment and a world where credibility is, is being lost. So I think it's important that the church says the right thing, that it says uh, things that make gel with the, with the community and, and with, that says, hey, I'm listening to you researchers, you scientists, and, and I haven't blocked you out. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we're happy to go to doctors to get help when we've got a... You know, yeah, we've got a cancer, sick. we go to an oncologist, you know. Yeah. So I think it, there is a little bit of a questionable integrity when we're willing to do that, but we're not willing to take the advice on the front end. And so I do think that is a good challenge for us. Yeah. Um, and so I would push back on people who have very, very airy-fairy, unresearched positions where it's just I feel like uh, God said don't do this. I, I would really want to challenge that. Um, because I, I don't think that that's a, a position to hold at all it, with any integrity. Um, however, if they have done significant scientific research which is causing them to hold back, waiting for wisdom to be clearer, that's a different discussion. And maybe what I should just say to you guys is that this coronavirus has come out of our forest, come out of a bush, largely because of, we think, climate change. So down the road, we will have to look at similar situations as, as the climate that we live in causes the environment to alter. And, and there are other bugs out there that for the moment we thankfully don't even know about or even see. So down the road in the next generation, um, we need to be laying foundations now as to how do we respond to a changing world, a changing environment. Um, and, and that's where I would say I would love the church to be on the cutting edge of, of saying, hey, we're with you guys. We, we're listening to the scientists. We're, we're part of the solution and not the problem. A part of the solution and not part of the problem. That's where we leave it for this podcast. And I, and I hope and I trust that you've been, you found it very helpful and you have been equipped to be able to navigate these treacherous and very often confusing waters around COVID-19. But I think overwhelmingly what we can conclude from today is that we would certainly recommend that you go and get vaccinated and have grace and walk humbly around those who have a different opinion to you. And with those words, we want to just say to you, Salani Gahle. Cheers, guys. Thank you for listening to Context. We pray that today's podcast helps you live your best life for God and that you're encouraged to invite others to do the same. If today's discussion was helpful to you, 
please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. In doing so, you will help others learn more about living for God in our context. If you would like to get in touch with us, please contact us on the details in the description. Because truly, context is everything.